We're going to have the rest of our main Bible reading now, which is picking up 1 Corinthians chapter 6, which is on page 954 of the Church Bibles. <coughs> so 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 1, says this. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he get, dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. A gobble destroyed both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Well, do keep that text open. We're going to be having a look at that together in the next uh, few minutes. Just to say there is an outline of where we're going in your service sheet, so please do take advantage of that if that's helpful to make notes to study your thinking. And at the end of the talk there be an opportunity to ask any questions or make any comments normally we have time for two or three questions either related to something i've said or uh, about what the pastor is saying so i mention that now so you can have that in mind as we go through but before we go any further let's pray and ask for god's help heavenly father we thank you that you are the god who does not change that you are truthful, good, and sovereign over your creation. And therefore we pray, please, 
as we uh, reflect on your word now, that we would be those who would vindicate who you are in our response to your word, that we would listen to it because it's true, that we would trust it because it's good, and that we would obey it because you rule over us. Amen. It's my body, I can do what I want with it. It's very much a slogan for today's society. It's the idea that my body belongs to me. Your body belongs to you. We are self-owned. The implication being that if my body belongs to me, then I can do what I want with it, because it's mine. Your body belongs to you, so you can do what you want with it. Crucial to this line of thinking is that it rules out ownership by another. To say that my body belongs to me is to imply that it doesn't belong to anybody else. A claim of self-ownership rules out any claim of ownership by anybody else and any entailments that would bring. For if I was owned by somebody else, then there would be obligations as to what I am to do with my body because it doesn't ultimately belong to me. But it's my body. I can do what I want with it. It's nobody else's business. One of the things that we've been introduced to in the book of um, Corinthians so far is that there are two types of wisdom. There are two different ways of thinking. One Paul calls the wisdom of God and the other he calls the wisdom of the world. Now the wisdom of God, that's the way that God understands himself and his creation. And so to have the wisdom of God is to share his understanding, his perspective on everything. And Paul says that we can only share that perspective with God if he reveals it to us by his spirit. The wisdom of the world, on the other hand, is a human understanding of God and the world. But it's not a neutral one, but a fallen perspective. The world here is a fallen world in rebellion against God. And so the wisdom of the world comes out of a, a posture of human autonomy and independence from God. Now this means, of course, that we hadn't ought to accept uncritically things which are said. The slogans of our society may sound reasonable, but because we know that there are these two types of wisdom, we need to do some evaluation. It may be that it's my body, I can do what I want with it. It's more at home in the wisdom of the world than the wisdom of God. And this is one of the unique things about Christianity. Because without Christianity, we don't have access to the wisdom of God. All we would have is the perspective that the wisdom of the world provides. Whereas if we have the wisdom of God, we can evaluate what we think and bring it in line with God's perspective. Now, in the section of uh, Corinthians that we're considering this morning, 
Paul is continuing to respond to a number of reports that he's heard about the Christian church in Corinth. And 1 Corinthians is actually a book, well, a letter of two halves. The first half is his response to reports he's heard about them. The second half is his response to the letter that he has received from them. And today we're still in the first half, considering his response to these reports that he's heard about them. And there are a number of things um, that he's heard. So let's take a look at this together and see what we can learn. The first thing he has heard is that there's someone in the church who is sleeping with his father's wife. They might think, hang on a moment, his father's wife, is that not his mother? Well, it may be that she's not called his mother because she isn't, that she is a wife of his father other than his mother. And he's having sexual relations with her. The point is, the church isn't doing anything about it. They are accepting this practice. And it actually says that they are arrogant, which is interesting. I mean, it could mean that the general church posture is one of arrogance. And Paul is saying, look, bearing in mind this is happening, you shouldn't be arrogant, but shamed. Another possibility is that they are arrogant and that they're saying in one way or another that it doesn't really matter that this is happening. That is, that they understand themselves to be a spiritual church that's free from the trappings of physicality and that what you do with your body doesn't actually matter. Well, either way, Paul gives instruction. He tells them that they need to act and that they need to put the man outside of the church. Now, that may sound harsh to modern ears, but Paul says it in the context of their care and responsibility, not only for themselves as a church, but also for this man. So first of all, regarding the care of the man, have a look at chapter 5, verse 2. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, when it says to deliver this man to Satan, that's not the idea of personally handing him over to Satan to, to work on him, as it were. Rather, it's the idea that he's to be put back into the world, to turn him back out into Satan's sphere, as it were. The purpose is that his flesh is destroyed and his spirit is saved. Now, again, flesh and spirit are not being used here in terms of physical and non-physical. It doesn't mean that his body is to be destroyed and his soul saved. Paul is using flesh and spirit to refer to the whole person as viewed from different angles. The spirit means the whole person is orientated towards God. The flesh means the whole person as orientated away from God. The purpose of delivering this man to Satan is not that he be destroyed, but saved. It's for his good, for rather than forfeit his salvation, 
he would repent and be saved in the day of the Lord. But it's not only for his care that his behaviour is addressed. It's also for the care of the church that this happens. For if he stays in the church, it risks his behaviour spreading. And it's this idea of the, the metaphor of the leaven and the bread that Paul uses. Leaven contains yeast. And so when you add it to dough, it spreads all the way through. And the risk is that if this man's behaviour isn't addressed, it will spread and be adopted by other members of the church. It is very interesting at this point to reflect on that idea we began with. It's my body, or it's his body, his business. Because actually what we're seeing here is that what he is doing with his body is having and can have an effect on the people around him. And I take it, therefore, that our purity as the people of God is part of our commitment and concern for one another, lest we be the yeast that leavens the whole lump. The next report that Paul deals with is the idea of lawsuits that they're bringing against one another. And it's not only that they're having these grievances against one another, but they're also bringing them to the court in Corinth to sort out. And these disputes are between brothers, between one Christian and another. And what's interesting is what Paul says, the reason why this should stop, and the reason's given in chapter 6, verse 2. He says, Or do not know that the saints will judge the world, and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? It's because they will be the judges of the world, says Paul. Now you might think, hang on a minute, I thought Paul just said that they weren't to pass judgment on the world, that the church is to judge inside, but that the judgment of the world is to be done by God. And now Paul says that they will judge the world. And what's going on here, just to get this straight in our minds, we need to think in terms of a timeline. That now there is the judgment on the church, it's to be pure. But then the judgment of the world will come at the end of the age. And whilst it's God's prerogative to judge the world, no, God will be the judge of the world. The people of God will share in that judgment. Now, if that sounds strange to you, it's not unrelated to the idea that when God made the world, he made humans rulers of the world under him. As image bearers, they were to have dominion over the earth under God. Now, that rule, of course, has been contested since the fall. And whilst the church is the beginning of the redeemed people, the beginning of the new creation, finally, with the new creation, the people of God will take their place as judges, as rulers over the world. Now Paul thinks that that has, impl that has implications for them now. If they're going to judge the world then, then they ought to be able to make right judgments between one another now. 
bearing in mind who they will one day be, has implications for who they are to be now. Their competence to be future judges of the world ought to show itself as being competent to make the right judgments in the church. And it's because they've been given the wisdom of God that they share his mind. They're in a much better position to make these judgments and go into the courts in Corinth. It's interesting that the commentator on this, he actually goes a step further and says that Paul may not simply have in mind that they ought to sort these grievances out between themselves, but actually he's shaming them to stop having these grievances altogether. That his whole argument is to shame them, that it's wholly inappropriate to be defrauding one another in the first place. That this whole activity within the church needs to stop. Well, the final section we're looking at this morning starts off with these bits in inverted commas, which you might think is a bit strange. So let me read again verses six, chapter 6, verses 12 to 13. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Okay, it's thought what's going on here is that Paul is quoting the slogans of the day. So whether it's what they actually said in Corinth, or perhaps Paul's attempt to encapsulate these thoughts. So we have our slogans, it's my body, I can do what I want with it. They had their slogans. Well, let's have a look at what their slogans are and then how Paul evaluates them. There are two slogans. The first one is, all things are lawful for me. It's the idea of freedom, that you can do what you want, that there are no restrictions. The second one is interesting because, well, one of the issues actually that we've got with our reading of it is that the inverted commas that you see on the page don't actually appear in the original text. There is no punctuation in Greek. And so it's the translator's job to work out where the inverted commas should start and end. Now, if you look at the NIV, which is a different translation of the Bible, but it's still a good one, they actually have the quotation marks further apart so that the second slogan runs as Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Now we have two commentaries on 1 Corinthians. One goes with the shorter one, one goes with the longer one. But I'm slightly persuaded um, more that the longer one, of the longer one. So if you're happy, let's just run with that for now and let me show you why. You don't need to worry too much because both commentators, commentators land in a sort of similar place. So let's suppose for a moment that the second slogan is food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. First of all, let's explore what that would mean and then why I think it is to be preferred. 
So the second slogan explains why everything is permissible. What's permissible and why everything is. The body, with its bodily appetites and functions, are ultimately going to be destroyed by God. And so, it's of little consequence what you do with them. You're free to do what you want with your body because it's destined for destruction. It's the idea that what they were considering to be spiritual is the opposite of what is physical. So you have the physical, the body, the bodily functions and appetites, but they're fleeting. They're not going to last. And because of that, you're free to do what you want with your body. Now, a reason in favour of the slightly extended quotation is to do with the structured way Paul speaks. Because did you notice that each time he makes a quotation, he then counters it with an evaluation of his own. So he makes the quotation and then he says, but, da, 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 da. and again, he makes the quotation, but, I say, da, da, da. and actually, after it says, and God will destroy both one and the other, there is, would you believe it, a but, or a however, that in the ESV hasn't been translated. And so with the longer quotation, the structure would flow as follows. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy one and the other. But the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And I think it fits theologically. For not only are they arrogant that that man was sleeping with his father's wife, but there are also those in the church who we can only assume are going to prostitutes. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I think, how can they possibly be justifying that? What were they thinking to think that that was okay? What they were thinking is that these are just bodily appetites. They're in a totally different category to what they're thinking of as spiritual. And therefore they see in their Christianity, their spirituality, a freedom with all things bodily. Well, Paul then helps them to evaluate the wisdom of the world from which they've been redeemed with the wisdom of God. And Paul wants them to bring the wisdom of God to evaluate their fallen thinking so that their thinking would be renewed and that they might live lives accord accordingly. And there are just a couple of things to, um, or let me show you a couple of things to observe about his response. The first is what he says in chapter 6, verse 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. This is the idea that Jesus was raised in bodily form. The implication being that they also will be raised in bodily form. Jesus didn't simply redeem the soul, but he redeems the whole person, including the body. You see, if Jesus rose and ascended in a non-physical form, then we might expect only to share that non-physical form with him. But because he rose and ascended in a physical form, a human being with feet and armpits, so we will rise 
as a physical human being. Jesus assumes a whole human nature, and so he redeems a whole human nature. And therefore, they're quite wrong in making this divide between the spiritual and the physical. That's not a distinction to make. And therefore, what we do with our bodies matters. It's a spiritual issue what we do with our bodies. Second, what he says informs what they then are to do with our bodies. And it's the idea that we are owned, owned by God, and therefore we're to glorify him in our bodies. That his redemption is part of his ownership of us. When you step back a bit, it makes sense. Okay, so when God created us, that established his ownership of us. So whoever you are, Christian or not, we are all owned by God by virtue of the fact that he made us. And if we're owned by God, that has implications for what we're to do with our bodies. We're to serve God with them. Now, since the fall, that ownership has been contested. We have declared self-ownership. But in redemption, God reasserts his ownership over his people. And that's what's going on here when he mentions the Spirit of God. Actually, later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, Paul will talk about the seal of ownership of the Spirit, who marks us out to be his. That is to say, we're created by God, which means we're owned by God. Then we are recreated by God. God's ownership of us is reasserted by the seal of the Holy Spirit, marking us out as his possession. And so, on the one hand, everybody is owned by God, whether you contest it or not. But for the Christian, that ownership has been re-established by his spirit. So if you can put it this way, there is a, a double ownership. And this came at the price of redemption, the death of his son. The conclusion, therefore, is that if we're owned by God, that ownership involves the whole person. We're to serve God with our whole bodies. We began by considering one of the slogans of our day. It's my body, I can do what I want with it. And we've observed that because there are these two types of wisdom in the world, we can't accept the slogans of the world uncritically, but we're to evaluate them with the wisdom of God that he has given us. And we're now in a position to evaluate it with the wisdom of God. This slogan of our day is part of the wisdom of the world that is hostile to God. In declaring self-ownership, we are rejecting God's ownership of us. The wisdom of God tells us that we're not self-owned. We are owned by God, not only at creation, but that we've received the seal of ownership of his spirit. And therefore, we're to serve God with our whole bodies. Let me pray, and then I'll open up to any questions or comments that you might have.
Heavenly Father, we do thank you for redemption, that although you have created us and therefore um, own us, and although that has been contested uh, since the fall, thank you that you sent your son uh, to die in our place, that we could be reconciled to you, and that that claim of ownership be re-established. And we thank you that that isn't an ownership simply of our souls, but of our whole a whole humanity. Uh, thank you. We can look forward to a day where we will um, rule over the new creation under you. And therefore, pray please that we would be the people who you've redeemed us to be. Help us to honour you with um, our bodies. In Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned before, we uh, usually have uh, time uh, Questions or comments? Now's that time. Now we have two or three. Anyone have a question or comment? Susie. You know, it's a fair enough questions. Just for the recording, um, in verse 5 it says, um, you were to deliver, chapter 5, verse 5, you deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. And the question is around, this maybe seems a bit more obvious, how putting him out of the church is a care of the church, but less clear how it's a care of him. And although, even though the purpose is he's put out in order to be restored, how does that sort of come about? Mm-hmm. I know Paul doesn't say much. He doesn't give us much there. So yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, no. Yes, and I guess it's, it's, it, I mean, it's a general principle. One of the things that we, we do need to do is that this isn't Paul's, this isn't the Bible's chapter on church care. This is Paul responding to a very specific issue. Um, but obviously, we'll have a bearing on the um, um, a bearing on <clears throat> how we think about church care. But we need to integrate that with what the rest of the Bible says. So I think is it Matthew eighteen? Is that one of the places to you know another place to go as well? I mean, I take it just. I mean, a couple of things just to be thinking about is that it is worth saying that the purpose of putting him out 
is that he would repent and be restored. So he's not been put out just to, you know, we're, we're done with you. That the, the object is, it is to achieve this coming to your senses, repentance and restoration for salvation. Now, there's no promise that that will happen. And in many ways, he's putting himself in a quite a dangerous position because presumably as a member of the church, he's, he's been taught, he knows the same stuff as everybody else. And I take it by this point as well, this isn't the first conversation. This is someone who is um, uh, set on this course of behaviour. And I take it that putting somebody out, is, it ought to be seen as a very serious thing. Because the, the, the opposite is if he stays within the church, which goes back to your other comment about the rest of the church, it just signals to everybody else, doesn't really... It's a little consequence, you know, it's not really it's not really a problem. But to actually for him to see actually if he continues like this, he's not going to ultimately be counted among the people of God, that, that would be a sort of a wake up call, um, or at least the opportunity for a wake up call that he would say, Well no, I I want to be and then there's forgiveness and restoration. So I think that's the the plan. I mean it's a funny one also because I kind of think um I don't know, if, Tom, if you want to say anything on this, but um, doing some of the work on this today, <clears throat> one thing that's more likely to happen is that if that happens, someone just goes to another church. And that's, that's the kind of thing that happens just because how church is often quite fragmented. You know, you can just go, if, if it doesn't work, you can just go somewhere else. And so I take it for us, I think there's a couple of things that we should be thinking about. On the one hand, it, this just underlies how we are to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, like we're thinking about in Matthew. So we don't want to go anywhere near this in terms of, um, you know, the whole question isn't what can I do to, to get away with it, it's how holy can we be and all the more that we, we want to get to know God and reflect him. But I suppose another thing would be is presumably in our best moment, this is the kind of church you want to be in because actually this is actually how to properly care for the church. And so um, actually to be thinking now, we, this is what we'd want to submit to, because actually it's the means which God has given for us to be restored and to repent. So it's that kind of, you know, it wouldn't be something to fight, but to actually think, despite it being embarrassing, painful, all the rest of it, actually this is, you know, this is, this is right and therefore this needs to sort of happen. But, but because you can just go to another church, you, know, that, you need some willingness on the other person to think, actually, I need to listen to what the church says or the elders say, and therefore respond. Is that okay? Cool. Anybody else? Yeah, Victor. So I just want to make a comment uh, on the beginning of chapter 5, which is it is actually for So, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. So, that says a lot, a lot about the uh, social trend at the time because it's going to be springs. So, I assume there was a lot of sympathy going on. So, do you think it, 
in some ways reflects the social trends we have today? Yeah, no, that's a helpful observation. So just in chapter for the recording, chapter 5, verse 1, it says, it's actually reported that there are sexual morality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among the pagans. And this whole idea that, you know, that's the comment is, that means, or does that mean actually what was going on reflected the society that they came from in Corinth? You know, this was typical of Corinth. This was, you know, even for them, this was slightly, you know, um, shocking um and actually you know, is that reflected in society today well i think it's interesting and i think one thing is just worth getting your head around is that <clears throat> there's two slightly different types of things going on here because basically corinth is a, a what paul will call an immature church and so um, and they're not being Christians for that long, but they've come from a society which is, you know, doing all of these, doing all of these things. And so, what Paul is getting them to do is to basically think: well, if you're a Christian, you need to rethink everything. You've been you brought up with this whole society that you know is saying things like um, everything's permissible, you know, all, all that kind of thing, and therefore they need to learn the wisdom of God and therefore to rethink everything and bring all their thoughts and therefore their hearts and minds in line. Now that's very similar today, depending how you are. Some of us are from Christian families. In many senses, we've been grown up with patterns of, of thinking God's thoughts after him. Others of us have lived lives um, much more embedded in um, uh, the wisdom of the world so when we become a Christian, you know, we just got to rethink everything. And it takes time. And I think to some extent there is a patience because it may just be that it's not that you're excused, but that until you've actually learnt actually what, who God is and what he requires of us, actually you don't know, do you? So like so there are sort of things. Saying, now, I think that's more what's going on here. There is another type of influence, and that is that, you know, they could be, mature Christians or Christians and then there's these things going on in the world and then they start to flirt with them or they're influenced by them. So rather than growing from immaturity to maturity, it's a kind of a moving away. You know, I'm enticed by thinking. Now, I mean, in many ways, there'd be overlap in both. I think the second feels a little bit more dangerous because the first one, that's from immaturity to maturity, it's partly because you don't know that you may be doing these things. And when you are informed, at least it gives you the opportunity then to think differently. Whereas if you're already thinking straight and then you move away to distorted thinking, you kind of think, well, you know, there's not much new stuff left to say because you've been told that stuff and then you, you've moved away from that to something else. So I think they're, they're sort of helpful things to sort of think about. But I think here it seems to be the case that this is a new church. You know, we are, it's quite, you know, interesting time in redemptive history. Christ has died, risen, ascended. Paul's preached the gospel to them. They've been saved, but they've been saved from. There's that lovely verse. Did you see? Um, uh, in verse, let me just read again and I'll finish with this bit. Verse 9 to 11. Do not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. That's who they were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So his argument in short is, bear in mind that's who you were, but now you're this, the people of God. Be that, live consistently, and that's what he's, he's instructing them on. Is that okay? Okay, we've had two slightly longer ones, so let's leave it there. And But by all means, we can continue to discuss these things over the course of today. We're going to sing our next song, How Deep is Father's Love.